If you would all just join in prayer with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you for your people as they've gathered with us this morning. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to know you, that your word would be powerful to us, that you would keep us safe in the midst of the storm. God, if anyone needs help um, and something happens at their home or whatever and they need help, I pray that they would reach out to one of us, to me personally, um, um, that we wouldn't um, handle maybe a potential problem alone. Um, if we need help, God, I pray that that would be shared. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how awesome it is. Thank you for your victory, for supernatural transformation in Christ. I pray, Lord, that your word would be powerful to us as we reflect on it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we are um, in the very final portion of the book of Galatians. Um, this was going to be our last sermon on the book of Galatians. We've been in it for a few months now, and this was going to conclude it, and I'm still going to conclude it um, this morning just in a different, I guess, through a different medium. But we're turning now to Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Galatians 6, 11 through 18, um, open up your Bible, um, grab a cup of coffee, and um, enjoy you um, you could also, you're on the computer right now, you might even be able to get um, a Bible app or um, a website that can help you um, follow along. But I'm in Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And this is what it says. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they, they want you to be circumcised that they might boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. If you were to uh, visit the rotunda of the National Archives in Washington, D.C., you would be able to marvel at such founding documents of the United States as things like the Bill of Rights or the Constitution and, of course, the Declaration of Independence. And you might just start reading these familiar and awe-inspiring words with care and perhaps with a bit of fear and trembling when you might just remember that those 56 signatures were placed there by men who were quite aware that it was likely that they would be executed if their plan had failed. There was a unanimous decision that day um, of the Second Continental Congress. It was made with firm resolve and conviction by men like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and more. But one signature really stands out. <clears throat> and um, it's not because of the man's stature, it's not because of his character, or anything that we really remember about him, 
outside of this one simple thing that he assigned his name larger than anyone else's. And you know him as John Hancock. If you're like me, you really don't know much about John Hancock outside of the fact that he decided to ruin the uniformity of perhaps the most important document ever signed in human history. <laughs> He's one of those guys. Legend has it that after signing, he commented, he said something along the lines of this, Now King George, now old King George, can read my name without his spectacles. Whatever his motivation, people argue why he did what he did, and no one really knows for sure. It seems apparent that he was intent on the world knowing how important this document was to him. And how he unabashedly tied himself to its principles and to its consequences. So he signed his name enormous. The last paragraph of the book of Galatians is a very similar. Because in verse 11 we read, See what large letters I use as I write to you with mine own hand. Now this is interesting because many letters in the ancient Near East were written by what is, uh, what is called an amanuensis. So an amanuensis basically is a person who would write down the words of someone else by dictation. So apparently here at the end of the letter, Paul takes the quill away from his amanuensis and he says, I want to personally finish writing this letter and I'm going to write these letters larger than the ones that you wrote. So he takes the quill and he begins to write himself in double-sized, bolded font. Because <laughs> he wants to con conclude this letter. It's a matter of urgency. And he summarizes, if you read carefully the verses again that we just read, he is summarizing carefully the entire letter in just a paragraph with exacting clarity. And he reminds us, Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, what the gospel is, what the demands of the gospel are, and why we should follow it as a rule of life. We'll get into that a little bit more later. So there are three movements that we can see, and th these are what I titled them. He talks about self-centered boasting, Christ-centered boasting, and finally, a rule of life. And that's how he closes this letter. So let's look at self-centered boasting. Verse 12, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. <clears throat> Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. There's a lot of the, the, the word boast is being used over and over and over again. As we learn about Christianity and we read the words of Christ in the Gospels and we read the letters of Paul and we read the Old Testament prophets, we begin to learn that Christianity, faith in Jesus Christ, has very little, if nothing at all, to do with the way we look externally. It's not about externals. It's not about putting on a show it is about inward heart transformation. Christianity is about the heart. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're filled with the bones of the dead and everything unclean. 
right? Not easy words to hear. Paul has repeatedly reminded us that the message of the gospel and the cross of Christ is offensive to the human heart. And it's offensive, very simply, because it says that we are so sinful that we need to be saved. We need redemption. We are not okay on our own. We're guilty. We don't like that. That's offensive to the human heart. But not only, that's not just, that's not the only offensive part. Maybe a part of that we could sort of understand and swallow. As long as we're not so bad that we can't fix the problem ourselves. And that's the real offense. Because Paul is reminding us, the Bible is reminding us, that we are so sinful that we cannot save ourselves or undo the bad with the good that we do. Our wicked hearts can't become clean through a self-washing. We need new hearts. It's offensive to the human heart because, very simply, we need Jesus in particular to save us. That means we can't save ourselves. And that means other people can't, other religions can't, other gods can't, because there are no other gods and there is no other Savior but Christ. There is no other outlet for dealing with the problem of sin in our hearts and in our world outside of the person of Jesus Christ. So for the liberal person in our world, this seems awfully intolerant. right? Well, why can't we just be better humans or why can't other, other paths lead us to sort of the life that you're describing. For the conservative person or the religious person, the gospel is also offensive to them too because of their presumption that they're not that bad, that they ha are adhering to religious rules. So, so the gospel is offensive to the irreligious person and it's offensive to the religious person. Our aims... One, excuse me, one aims to prove themselves by their worldly performance, right? While the other, the religious person, aims to self-save through their religious adherence. The gospel says that both remain under the condemnation of sin. So the circumcision crowd that we see here that Paul is addressing seek their own salvation by the approval of others. Verse 12, those who want to impress by means of the flesh. They want to impress you by means of the flesh. So we could, we could translate it like this. Those who want to impress people outwardly through religious observance. These are trying to compel you to also do the same thing, to look impressive, to be circumcised, to adhere to religious rules, to self-save. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. The idea that we can save ourselves is not offensive to anybody. It's, it's built into the mind, the fallen mind. It's built into fallen religions. It's built into a system, no matter what system that we find ourselves in, except for the gospel. The idea that we can save ourselves is not offensive to anyone. Because it basically says that we're not so bad. Who's, who are we going to offend when we tell them, hey, you know what, you're not so bad, you're pretty good, you'll be okay. That's not an offensive statement. We all, Everyone would share that sentiment if you talk to them honestly. Because it basically says that we're not so bad and that our good can sort of cancel out the bad things that we've done. So we can both simply 
saying we could boast in ourselves. We could sort of be proud of ourselves at the end of the day for cleaning the, the mess, cleaning up the mess we made. This self-saving message has been around forever and it gets applauded by everyone in this world. So if you want to get off the hook with persecution, just tell people around you that they're okay and that they're good enough. So we can all start admiring ourselves and our accomplishments. Paul says they want to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. So they find religion for prestige and for honor. Right? Um, George Mueller is a person that I've talked about from time to time. He's that great missionary and evangelist to the orphans in the 1800s. He said this. Excuse me. He said this of his father. Um, in the 18, His father said this to, to Mueller in the 1800s. My father's desire, Mueller writes, was that I should become a clergyman. Not indeed that thus I might serve God, but that I might have a comfortable living. <laughs> Friends, the, the you're pretty awesome already gospel is always going to be rewarded. That's always going to give you a comfortable living. People are going to be your friend with that gospel. They're going to like you and not reject you. But Paul warns, not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Now remember, to be circumcised was in the law of Moses. Okay, So it was part of a religious law that they would customarily follow in the Old Testament in Israel. When Christ came along, we learned that this was just sort of a symbol. But really, we needed circumcised hearts. Our heart needed to be cleansed and purified from the inside out. So he says... Even if, you obey, even if you obey the law to be circumcised, you really haven't obeyed the law in full. Because the law also commands, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that, that's not a tattoo that you can put on your arm. There's, no, there's nothing on your body that, can you, that you can chop off to make you a loving person. You see, love is in the heart. And who truly has done this? So Paul is saying, even if you get circumcised, you still have broken the law. It's a heart issue. It's why Jesus said, unless you are born again, in other words, given a new heart, your old, old, dead, hard heart is replaced with a new one. He said, unless this happens, you cannot see the kingdom. Because the heart is deceitful and wicked, our hope then is for God to give us a new heart. And that's exactly what he promises to do for us by his grace in the book of Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, chapter 31, it says, I will give you a new heart, and I will remove your heart of stone. We cannot possibly save ourselves by cleaning up our act with our external behaviors. There's no technique to solve our dilemma. There's no secret yoga position that can make us one with everything. There is no sale that's big enough that will prove your worth. The, gospel, the gospel's offense is that there is no category for boasting in yourself. We cannot look internally that we can, to, to anything that we can brag about to God. There's nothing we can put on to make us right with him. So Paul continues this section of large, double-font, bolded letters, and now he, he moves on to Christ-centered boasting. 
Verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. When I hear the word boast, I think of Uncle Rico from the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Now, this illustration might get lost on half of you if you've never seen the movie. <laughs> but there's a movie called Napoleon Dynamite, and it features um, a man in his 40s named Uncle Rico. The popular website Fandom writes about Rico. It says this, When Rico was in high school, he was a popular football star with dreams of going to the NFL. But he dropped the winning pass for the big game and lost his popularity soon after. He dropped out of high school, abandoned his dreams, and lived in his orange Santana ever since. Now he spends his time filming himself tossing footballs. <laughs> Uncle Rico. Uh, in one of the scenes of the movie, he's sitting with his nephew Kip, and he says this, quote, Back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile, boasting, and then shortly after he says this, he sees his other nephew, Napoleon, riding up on a, on a bicycle. And he says, watch this. And he picks up a stake and hucks it at his head. And then he says these words, these infamous Napoleon dynamite words. How much you want to bet I can throw a football over them mountains? And he then begins to imagine what his life could have been like if the coach had simply kept him in in the fourth quarter. He would have been somebody. He would have been rich. He would have met his soulmate. Now we mentioned this a little bit about, we talked a little bit about this last week. His desire was to have been somebody. He was hungry for glory. And all of us are hungry for glory. And there are only two ways in life that we can get it. We can earn it through our performance or we can be given it to us as an undeserved gift from the heavenly Father of lights through the death and resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says here, God forbid that I should boast in anything but Jesus. Not in my arm, not in, the way, not in what I could have been if only this or that had gone differently in life. God forbid I should boast in anything about me, anything that I've done or maybe just didn't do because I failed. I will boast in Christ alone. And what a wonderful hymn that we hear those words from Stuart Town Townend. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, nor power, no, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. It's why Jeremiah um, said this, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have un understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. What a wonderful summary that we receive in verse 14 of the gospel. And it says this, May I never boast except in the cross 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If we have turned from self-salvation, from the self-saving method, to the Jesus-only saving method, if we've turned from this self-saving method to Jesus-saves-me method, the world will be crucified to you. Or as maybe someone, uh, um, or as one author put it, the world is dead to you. We might say it will have no power over us. When we believe that Jesus saves us, the world, the circumstances of life, the losses and victories have no power over us. We are no longer proven by our earning power, our golf score, our sex appeal, Donald Guthrie summarizes, the natural world has ceased to have any claim on us. The gospel destroys the power that the world once had on us. The, the, the need that we had to accomplish something great in life, in a worldly sense, is gone. It has no power over us. And why? If there is nothing in the world that can save us, including ourselves, I don't need it to prove myself anymore. All I need is Christ. Now I can just enjoy the world. Isn't that true? So Paul repeats when he says in 5.6, the same sentiment that we just read in verse 14. <clears throat> verse 15, neither circumcision nor circum uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. So moral superiority doesn't mean anything. Religious externals don't mean, make me acceptable to God. My irreligion or my carnality or my accomplishments, these don't mean anything either. What matters is that I am what he calls a new creation, a new creature. And what a loaded statement this is. What he's saying is that he is a part of the new order that King Jesus introduced to the world at his death and resurrection. God's redemptive plan in Jesus is to bring his kingdom back to this world and take it back. All the st stuff that's messed up and broken and sinful about it, all the injustice, the kingdom, come, Jesus' kingdom comes and recreates it all, the new creation. What Paul is saying, what matters is that I'm part of that new creation. I'm new. I'm recreated. I'm given a new heart, and I'm grafted in to God's new creation plan. That's what matters. Because what, what's going on in the world around us now is all going to go away. It's all going to be replaced by the perfect kingdom and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says what, what matters is not this, this life that I live, but the life that I will live. The new creation in me. When Jesus returns, this new kingdom will remove the old one. It will be filled with the presence of God's love and goodness alone. So what he's saying is that all that matters now is that God in his grace has rescued me from the old me. He's rescued me from the old me by creating a new me to be in his new kingdom, his new world. And he does this not by my performance, but by the miracle of grace in God's new creation. When God created the world, friend, were you there? Did you help him? Did you give him any insight as to what color he should make flowers and the rose or what they should smell like? Did you give him instruction on how rain should fall? 
or what it should smell like on a summer day. You see, friends, at the creation, God was sovereign. It was all up to him. And we didn't help him. That's what grace is. Grace is God does it, and we don't participate. We just are the object of his power and love and work of miracle, uh, his, his miraculous work of creation. See? If our salvation is also called a new creation, why do we presume to have anything to do with it? We are the objects of his miraculous power and grace. The gospel makes it so that I no longer can brat, I no longer, longer brag about myself, but rather I brag about Christ and the miracle of his creation, what he did for me. That means the world doesn't have power over me anymore. And I am part of the recreation of God's world. And this, Paul says now, this is, this is what I'm almost done here. This, Paul says, is our rule of life as a Christian. This is how we walk in life as Christians. This is the, the message that we need to continually live by and remind ourselves of the rule, our rule of life. He says in verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this, underline this, rule to the Israel of God, or what he means there is to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? So peace and mercy to all who follow this underlying rule. What is he talking about? He's talking about the rule of grace, the rule that Jesus saves me, grafts me in um, to his family, adores me, applauds me, so that I, uh, and all by his grace and not my performance, so that I boast in him and not myself. You see, he says... Now, if you want peace to follow you, follow that rule. That means that if I get squirrely and squirmy and anxious and depressed and insecure and angry and all of this, the, the way out of it is to rehearse the gospel of Jesus Christ as a rule of life. Should we follow the gospel of grace plus nothing as a rule, we will know peace. But if we forget it, we'll get squirrely. We'll re we will revert back to self-saving and proving ourselves and measuring ourselves by our performance. A rule of life, you might have heard this phrase before, um, it, that, that phrase basically has its origin in, in a 6th century, century monk named uh, Benedict. He basically created this monastic order um, that would aid ancient monks to develop life together so that they might develop spiritual growth through rhythms of work, prayer, and other disciplines. So that's where we get this phrase, rule of life, from. Um, today, it's become sort of disassociated with religion in particular. It can still be a reference to that, but it can refer to a pursuit of a deeper purpose of life and sort of the habits that get you there, right? The word rule in Greek has to do with um, a means to determine the quality of something. It's like a measuring stick, a metric. The gospel then, this is what Paul's saying, and this is magnificent. The gospel is the measuring stick of the Christian life. My growth in Christ as a Christian is directly related to my commitment to trusting in the performance of Jesus and not my own. That's what Paul's saying here. Follow this. If you want to know if you're doing well as a Christian, are you delighting in the work of Jesus or are you delighting in the work of yourself? See? 
This radically transforms our standard for life and the way that we measure our own spiritual health as Christians, as a church. The measure of my health, the measure of your health, our churches, is about the work about our trust in the work of Jesus Christ, not in my good works. It's about trusting in him. Are we increasing in our awe of Christ, in our boasting of Jesus? Or are we just more impressed with how religious we are? Are, we, are you more impressed with Jesus today than you were a year ago? Or... Are you more impressed with you today than you were a year ago? Let's say it negatively. Are you less are you less impressed with you today than you were a year ago? You see because the gospel has this power in it that we don't we don't think less of ourselves. We actually see us through the eyes of Christ as the loving objects of his grace. Are you more disappointed with yourself and life today than you were a year ago? Or or are you more grateful for all that Christ has done for you today than you were? You see, that's the, ta- that's the metric. To continually rehearse the gospel of Jesus Christ, all that he's done for us. You see, we can, we can pile up all of the junk, all of the bad stuff that's happened to us in one pile. And, we, and, and the gospel, what the gospel does, it says, as, much, as hard as that was, as much as we can grieve our losses... I am the object of God's favor and grace and salvation, and he loves me to death. And that's what matters. So Paul ends his letter by putting up on display his chains and scars. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. He literally had scars on his back. He was beaten up for Jesus. And he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers. In other words, it's like he's saying, these are the lengths that I am willing to go for the Jesus plus nothing gospel, for boasting in Jesus Christ. I'm willing to be beaten up for it, and I'm even willing to be killed for it. Now, I could trade these marks for the applause of man, but that will leave an even greater injury to my soul. Now, he says, no, don't do that to me. Torture me, beat me, imprison me. Because Jesus only is my Savior, and I trade Jesus for nothing. I hope that you will trade him for nothing, too, friends. Here he ends. Grace begins the spiritual life. Grace continues the spiritual life, and grace will complete the spiritual life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for this um, short time together to reflect on this final passage of scripture. God, how we love you and how thankful we are, Lord, for your favor to us and your grace to us. God, I pray, Lord, that if anyone here doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, would you cry out to to, to the Heavenly Father, the creator of all things, the one that you're separated from because of your sin, and know that Christ took the burden for you. He took your curse for you because your Heavenly Father loves you and wants you to return to Him. So cry out to Him, God, I'm a sinner, save me. Everything in life that I've been pursuing that, I, that I've thought is, um, could fix the problem internally that I'm facing, I can't prove myself enough. 
I'm fallen, I'm fallen from you, God. Save me. Friend, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection as, as the means to make you right with God, and you're turning from your sin and every other confidence, then you're saved. Follow Christ. And for the rest of us, God, I pray, Lord, that we would boast in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Keep us safe in this storm. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, that's about it. I'm so grateful um, for you all for um, joining us. Um, it's such a great delight to, to be able to still connect in the midst of this. It's still not that bad out there, um, but it's going to, I think, only increase um, in intensity as the day goes on. So stay safe. Um, um, again, as I, as I said in the prayer in the beginning, if there's anything, any way that I can help you, if you're in trouble, you know, shoot us an email or, or give us a call, and we'll do our best to help you. But God bless, and you have a great day, okay?